This is the Down East EM Podcast. All right. Hello, everybody. My name is Jason Hine. We're going to be talking about hypertensive emergencies today. There are presentations, involved organs, and targeted treatment. All right, so the objectives for this talk, what do I want you to be able to take away from this at the end? I want you to be able to articulate an understanding of at-risk organ systems and severe hypertension. I want you to be able to differentiate the presentations by these involved organs, and then finally be able to appraise the different pharmacotherapies and their ideal clinical setting of use. So definitions and targets, as we go through this talk, there's really three organizations that have weighed in heavily on hypertension and hypertensive emergencies. They are the Joint National Committee, the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association, and the European Society of Cardiology and European Society of Hypertension. And we're going to be referencing these groups pretty heavily as we go through. So the first definition we need to get down is that of hypertension. What is hypertension? Well, that's elevated blood pressure. Duh, right? That's kind of obvious. From a medical standpoint, though, I'd say that it's blood pressure at which the benefits of treatment outweigh the risks. And so what are kind of the numbers that we see here uh, that are quoted or cited? The JNC7 and 04 put out their construct of normal prehypertension, hypertension 1 and hypertension 2, setting hypertension 1 at 140 uh, over 90 up to 159 over 99. The JNC8, which was a really popular and well-referenced uh, and cited paper, in 2014, sort of set different treatment uh, targets by age. They said if you're older than 60, your BP should be treated to 150 over 90 or below. And if you're less than 60, it should be 140 over 90 or below. That one's kind of a mix of evidence-based and expert opinion. And then the ACC in 2017, uh, they came up with their structure and they set hypertension one at 130 over 80. So they lowered their numbers a little bit there. The ESC and ESH in just this past year put out their numbers, and they added a lot. Very complicated. We have optimal, normal, high normal, and hypertension 1 through 3. But we're emergency medicine doctors, right? And I like to always think KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. I'm a big Office fan. Dwight Schrute is a fantastic character. His quote here, great advice, hurts my feelings every time. So we're going to keep it simple. So what's a take-home that you can think of from these recommendations? So the JNC and the ESC they set hypertension 1 at 140 over 90. And the ACC AHI are more conservative and set a lower number at 130 over 80. But the majority of this talk is going to be about hypertensive emergencies, right? So first, let's separate hypertensive urgencies and emergencies. Hypertensive urgencies is not an emergency department thing, right? Despite our walk-in clinics constantly wanting to refer patients for rule-out hypertensive urgency, that's not for the ER. We'll come back to this at the end. Hypertensive emergency, on the other hand, that's the ER doctor's wheelhouse. That's the stuff that should be getting us out of bed in the morning and that we should be fantastic at understanding, recognizing, and treating. So how do we define hypertensive emergency? Uh, each of these groups have their own little bit of a definition here. The JNC says that it's severely elevated blood pressure with impending or progressive target organ dysfunction. ACC, severely elevated blood pressure with evidence of new or worsening target organ damage. And the ESC says severe hypertension with associated acute hypertensive-mediated organ damage. Again, let's keep it simple, stupid. Let's simplify that. Hypertensive emergency is elevated blood pressure with target or end organ damage. But I actually want you to structure this in your mind a slightly differently. I want you to take that with and replace it with causing. High blood pressure causing end organ damage. Note here that we have a couple numbers that are in parentheses. They're not really a major part of the definition. And that's because it's not necessarily the absolute number for the blood pressure, but the rate of rise that really leads to these instances. 
So the pathophysiology, the but why of this all, for those who are interested, the ESC in their position document does have a flow chart of why this happens. It includes pressure naturesis and RAS activation and microcirculatory damage, autoregulatory failure, all leading to target organ damage. To be honest, this adds nothing to my understanding of the disease, or nor does it help me treat my patients better. But it's there for those who like this kind of stuff. More clinically relevant, though, is what is a target organ? There are six. They include the brain, the heart, the aorta or large vessels, pregnancy-related, which we're cheating a little bit there, the kidney, and the eye. And I actually want you to group the kidney and eye one into a single kind of entity we'll talk about at the end, which is malignant hypertension. So there's really five categories of hypertensive emergencies. Brain. Let's start with the brains. In the literature and in uh, the studies in this, they really cite three hypertensive emergencies of the brain. Acute ischemic stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, and hypertensive encephalopathy. But again, we're thinking of this as elevated blood pressure causing target organ damage. With that construct in mind, I actually want you to take CVA and ICH and take them out of the list there. They're different diseases, right? A clot in a vessel, a bursting of the vessel. Yes, they're associated with pre-existing hypertension. There often is hypertension that may be reactive in these cases. But if you break it down, their blood pressure goals are different. Their management collectively is very different. So they're not really true hypertensive emergencies in my mind. Hypertensive encephalopathy, on the other hand, is. It is impaired autoregulation secondary to incredibly elevated blood pressure causing cerebral edema. In comparison to CVA and ICH, this is an insidious onset. It happens over the course of generally hours, sometimes days. Very interestingly and kind of nerdy, there's a posterior circulation predominance here, and that's thought to be related to less sympathetic tone of the vessels in the posterior circulation. So have that little bit less ability to auto-regulate or micro-regulate the blood pressure changes and setting it up for uh, more susceptibility to blood pressure spikes. The presentation here are things that you would imagine, confusion, lethargy, seizures, coma, and in these you know, posterior circulation cases, you can have really cool cases like uh, ones presenting with cortical blindness. So once we recognize this, you know, how are we going to treat it? First, we have to talk briefly about general principles of treating hypertensive emergencies. You know, almost goes without saying that we're going to want to go IV over oral here, um, especially in these cases where there's cognitive changes or uh, depressed mental state, we need to go IV. But we have rapidly titrating medications and some pretty tight uh, timeframes for treating, and we need to go IV this way. If you can get an A-line, it's ideal to have that moment-to-moment uh, assessment of blood pressure but if you're in a shop that doesn't have that capacity, having serially cycled blood pressure cuff measurements that you trust is fine. Now, if you're here thinking we're going to give you the RCT on different medications for different hypertensive emergencies, I have to say sorry, that is not the case. There has been some uh, review of this. Cochrane in 2008, under the authorship of Perez, tried to assess to see if there was data for different blood pressure medications for hypertensive emergencies, and they said, no, absolutely not. We do not have enough quality or quantity of studies to make these recommendations. But coming back to these three groups as kind of the foundation for the recs that we're going to make today, let's see what they say. So our go-to agents here are going to be nicardipine or labetalol. Nicardipine is a great option. It's been shown to have vasodilatory effects on cerebral vasculature, 
Labetal is a tried and true blood pressure medication in the ED that we've used for a long time with great success. You know, question marks here for nitroprusside or hydralazine. You know, there's some less reputable sources like uh, Medscape or eMedicine who say uh, to avoid them because of the potential risk of, of cerebral shunting, which we don't want to do in patients with high ICP. That said, you know, the ESC lists nitroprusside as a second-line agent. In my opinion, if there's a theoretical risk with these medications, we have two fantastic other ones that we can use well. I would say avoid these two. And then what's our target? What are we trying to reach for? You know, it's the ACC AHA recommendations for us to decrease the MAP by 25% immediately and then try to get the patient to 160 over 110 or less as tolerated by the patient over the next two to six hours. Now, coming back to this nicardipine or labetalol recommendation, that is definitely going to be something that you would notice as a pattern here. It is uh, common in our recommendations for these meds. But pay attention here. I would actually change that to nicardipine over labetalol. And I'm not saying this because it has a proven record of being more efficacious. That's going to work more for the pathophysiology. No, it's really because we're better with it. And the bit of data that we have on the topic through the CLUE trial, we see that we are better at achieving our BP goals with nicardipine than we are with labetalol. And we'll review the clue trial at the end. So our next organ that's evolved in hypertensive emergencies is the heart. Our two diseases are acute coronary syndrome and acute heart failure with pulmonary edema. Looking at the coronary syndromes first, you know, this is a spectrum of disease. Again, we're talking about elevated blood pressure causing end organ damage. So a clot in a coronary is different. It's treated differently. We use PCI or thrombolysis. We have different blood pressure goals. Think of that differently. Our spectrum of disease here is unstable angina all the way through to an end STEMI type 2. And really, help frame this in your mind, what we're thinking of is that patient with coronary constriction, you know, stenosis and decreased flow with a huge afterload, right, that's working hard to the point where the demand is outweighing the supply and we're actually getting myocardial ischemia. So presentation... You know, we're emergency medicine doctors. This is something that we know well. We know that chest pain that's uh, exertional, that's associated with sweating, that radiates to the right arm or to both, so associated with vomiting, those are all correlated with ACS, and we know that. So once we find it, how do we treat it? The me- recommended medications here are nitroglycerin or labetalol with esmolol and nicardipine being alternatives. I personally recommend nitro over labetalol in this regard because it's already part of our general ACS care. Our nurses and our doctors are very familiar and facile with it, so you're going to have more success. What are our targeted blood pressures? The ACC AHA maintain that standard rec of decreasing the MAP by 25% over the first hour. The ESC is a little bit more aggressive, and they say get that systolic blood pressure under 140 immediately. So on to our next disease, acute heart failure with pulmonary edema. This is bread and butter emergency medicine, right? We all know this stuff well. We know that acute heart failure syndromes is a spectrum of disease. What we're really talking about here is SCAPE, sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. It's known by many many names, acute decompensated heart failure, acute pulmonary edema, etc. I like SCAPE because it kind of tells you about the pathophysiology and what the patient looks like. We know how these patients present, especially if you work the morning shifts. It's rapid onset of dyspnea, often in the morning when cortisol levels are highest and our blood pressure may spike. The signs are going to be tachypnea, that frothy, foamy sputum, rails, and beelines on our ultrasound. Again, the pathophys here is increased sympathetic tone, which drives up heart rate and leaves less time for diastole, filling of the coronaries, 
an uh, increase in the RAS activation. So once we see this, how do we treat it? We need to decrease preload and afterload here, right? So we're going to recommend nitroglycerin or nitroprusside. The ESC recommends nitroprusside because it decreases both preload and afterload. But if you're someone that knows and is facile with nitroglycerin, you know what the right dose is, it will do that as well. Other medications can include clavidipine, which I think you know we're not as uh, facile with, and now prolat, which I caution a little bit with because it does have some unpredictable effects on blood pressure. And then, you know, positive pressure ventilation, CPAP or BiPAP, it's been robbing intubations from residents for decades at this point, and we know that this is all about the PEEP, starting at a PEEP of about six and titrating up as tolerated. The big question here then, as we mentioned, comes to how much nitro are we using? So the standard recommendations here is for 200 to 400 micrograms a minute as a infusion, but there is some data and there's some definitely recommendations out there for using higher dose boluses. This article in the Turkish Journal of Emergency Medicine, they did, you know, it was just three cases in a case series, but they did one milligram every two minutes, and they found that those patients, you know, was helpful in avoiding ICU admission and intubation. The study that carries probably more weight was that Annals of EM study in 2007, where they had actually two groups, patients that were getting a, a kind of wimpy dose infusion, and then the uh, intervention group, which got two milligrams every three minutes. And these patients got a lot of nitro. Their average dose was like six and a half milligrams. And they found the patients that got this bolus had less need and uh, length of time on positive pressure ventilation, lower needs for uh, intubation, and less emissions to the ICU. And then what are our treatment targets here? Again, a little bit more of the same with the ACC maintaining that recommendation of decreasing the MAP by 25% and the ESC still saying get the SBP under 140 immediately. Aorta. All right, so onto our next organ. We're talking about the aorta here, and we have a single hypertensive emergency here of acute aortic dissection. Now, this is a terrifying disease process. It's like terrifyingly uh, interesting. It's like, for me, it's like box jellyfish. It's so scary that it's a fascinating thing. You know, the Swedish study that was done some time ago showed that there's about a 22% pre-hospital mortality. Of the patients that made it to hospital live, there's a 33% uh, mortality there. So a third of them are dying in the hospital. And only 78% of them had the diagnosis made before death. A little grim there. That classic presentation that we all know, that sudden onset of severe tearing pain in the chest radiating to the back. So this Mayo Clinic study about 230 patients, they found that it was present in 75% of patients. That means that 25% of patients were not that presentation. And again, scarily, 15% were painless. So yes, painless aortic dissection, yep, good luck with that. Hopefully there's other things that clue you in. What are the signs and symptoms of aortic dissection? Again, sudden severe chest pain is seen in 75%. And the other symptoms is going to really kind of be that dice roll, right? depending on what other vessels are involved. So you can have weakness, abdominal pain, loss of consciousness, paresthesias. And the signs, you know, if you take out a coronary, you can have a STEMI, a carotid causing stroke. SMA can cause that uh, intestinal ischemia. If you take out an iliac, you have the cold, dead leg, etc. But the kind of glass half full uh, approach to this, you in that Mayo Clinic study, there, the clinical suspicion was for aortic dissection in 62% of patients. So we got something going for us there. Now, there have been a few groups and a few good studies out there trying to help us further understand this disease and know what to look for. The most famous one was the IRAD study. It was a long go- ongoing repository of confirmed aortic dissection cases. 
they found that in these cases, there was a history of hypertension in 72 of them. Abrupt onset of pain was described in 85, and it was the worst or most severe pain they've ever had in 90. And luckily here, the painless aortic dissection rate was only 5%. On exam, very interestingly, type B dissections were much more likely to be hypertense, type A uh, less so, and actually a quarter of patients with type A dissections were hypotense, and those are the patients, again, that are taking out the coronary, taking out the aortic valve, or developing a pericardial effusion. Don't rely on your chest x-ray. It's going to be a coin flip almost in type Bs and 63% of normal in type As. The other study that kind of looked at this uh, from a different perspective was the one uh, in uh, academic emergency medicine in 2018. This was not just aortic dissection patients. It was a uh, systematic review with nine articles looking at patients presenting with chest pain and the difference uh, with the ones with aortic dissection. So definitely a different approach and kind of pessimistic stuff here. You're seeing history of hypertension and syncope are only weakly correlated with the final diagnosis. Severe pain, acute onset pain, and back pain were decently associated. Uh, they could not formulate likelihood ratios because it was a little heterogeneous. And then the exam, the things that were decently associated were pulse deficits, focal neurodeficits, and hypotension, in particularly for these type A's. So again, let's keep it simple. For the point of this talk, keep it simple. Great advice. Let's remember that chest, or in particular chest or back pain, plus other symptoms, we have to be thinking about aortic dissection. And we know the diagnosis here is made by you know, CTA if the patient's stable enough to go, or ultrasound if they're not. Treatment, though. This is the stuff that we should know well. It's a ticking time bomb. That 1% to 2% per hour uh, was from a 2009, uh, sorry, 1999 study that was done showing that that, that mortality increases by 1% to 2% per hour. And then surgical consults, who are we calling our surgical consults on, type A's or type B's? It's actually for everybody. We know that the type A's are truly surgical diseases. But again, the type B's, we mentioned just a minute ago, we could be taking out the SMA or a renal or an iliac, and we need to have endovascular involved in those cases as well. And then our hemodynamic targets, we have a couple different recs here. The JNC says get the SBP under 100. The ACC says get it under 120, and you got to do it within 20 minutes. And the ESC says get the uh, SPP under 120 and the heart rate under 60 to decrease the shear stress. JNC says esmolol. ACC says esmolol or labetalol with nicardipine and nitroprusside as alternatives. And the ESC also recommends esmolol. So the most consistent here, the one across the board, is esmolol in these cases. All right, so on to our next categories of pregnancy-related ones. We have to be thinking again about preeclampsia, including possibly ones with severe features, and eclampsia. So the definition, if you remember, a little refresher here, preeclampsia, you have to have a pregnancy that's greater than or equal to 20 weeks. For preeclampsia itself, it's a blood pressure over 140 over 90 plus proteinuria. And then for preeclampsia with severe features, it's greater than 160 over 110 with proteinuria or the 140 over 90 plus other organ system involvement. So it could be headache or blurred vision for CNS, right upper quadrant pain or LFT abnormalities, thrombocytopenia, AKI, or pulmonary edema. Eclampsia we know is all of the above plus seizures. So what are our treatment recommendations? A few different uh, target recommendations here across the board here, all over the place really, with a particularly uh, random recommendation from the JNC. We see that the JNC and the ACC recommend hydralazine, labetal, or nicardipine. 
and the ESC says libido or nicotine. That's consistent. Hydralazine we see recommended twice. I'm going over this quickly because there's just too much heterogeneity here to really take a full recommendation out of this. We got to go elsewhere where there's other pros in this, and we're talking specifically about American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. What do they recommend? So they say first get the blood pressure under 160 over 110. We want to get under the cut point for hypertensive uh, for preeclampsia with severe features. And they say that your treatment sort of range that you should get your patient in is 140 over uh, sorry 140 to 150 systolic and 90 to 110 diastolic. Their medication recommendations are hydralazine, labetalol, or oral nifedipine. Since we don't have such comfort or a great deal of comfort with the oral nifedipine, I would say hydralazine or labetalol. And again, magnesium we're using not to control blood pressure, but to actually prevent seizures. So there's your cocktail. All right, our final hypertensive emergency is malignant hypertension. This was a disease that actually the, the name came to, into existence in the 1920s. And it was given that name because patients with this advanced hypertension, without great antihypertensive meds at the time, they had a mortality rate similar to patients with uh, oncological diseases. So the cornerstone or the, you know, the most important underlying pathology we see is advanced retinopathy. But over time, the definition has kind of changed or started to involve other things. It's included many times acute renal failure and thrombotic microangiopathy. Sometimes people will throw in the definition also hypertensive encephalopathy, but not consistently. So I would say it's a, a kind of a moving target in terms of what is included in the diagnosis, but definitely advanced retinopathy and usually with an AKI. So what are the signs and symptoms here? You know, these are kind of self-explanatory. Renal, we're going to be looking and seeing oliguria and peripheral edema. Ocular, we're going to have that blurred vision. The signs, this is, you know, on renal, we're going to see the AKI. But ocular, this is why the fundoscopic exam in these patients with severe hypertension and only kind of like, oh, I, I feel a little dizzy or my vision's a little blurry. This is why the fundoscopic exam is so important. We're looking for, and if we confirm, uh, we see retinal hemorrhages, exudates, or papilledema, it actually would be a hypertensive emergency. So once we see this, how do we treat it? Nothing impressive here. Kind of that same recommendation of decreasing the MAP by 25%. We're going to use nicardipine over labetalol. All right, a couple last things before we wrap up. That hypertensive urgency thing, is that even real? You know, the ACC, AHA, and the ESC also, they say that it is an entity. Really what it is is really elevated blood pressure without any acute or impending target organ damage. So I don't see it as being majorly different than asymptomatic hypertension. But the most important thing, there is no indication for referral to the emergency department. So can I get an amen? Amen. 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 And then that clue trial I mentioned in the beginning this was a Cleveland Clinic ED study. It was patients with severe hypertension. Actually, two-thirds of them or so had hypertensive emergency. And they had a really realistic primary outcome. It was the ED doc set what they think the VP goal should be at 30 minutes, and did we hit that? They used nicardipine and labetalol, and they found that nicardipine had a higher success rate at 93 versus labetalol's 82. Nicardipine was also the better rescue medication. So in conclusion, the hypertensive emergencies we need to think of as elevated blood pressure causing target or end organ damage, and we have a couple specific ones to mention here. Hypertensive encephalopathy. For the heart, we recognize acute coronary syndromes and acute heart failure with pulmonary edema. For aorta, we recognize dissection. 
we have to think about pre and e- preeclampsia and eclampsia for the pregnancy-related ones, and then malignant hypertension for retinopathy and advanced kidney disease. So to wrap up, we have to think about our agents and our targets for each of these. For hypertensive encephalopathy, it's nicardipine or labetalol, with our higher success rate being with nicardipine, and we're trying to get that mapped down by 25%. For acute coronary syndromes, I recommend nitroglycerin over labetalol, and again, the ACC says get the map down by 25%. The ESC says get the SBP under 140. For acute heart failure or pulmonary edema, it's nitro plus positive pressure with the same treatment targets. Acute aortic dissection would be esmolol or nicardipine, and we're trying to get the systolic blood pressure under 120 and the heart rate under 60 per the ESC. For preeclampsia and eclampsia, it's labetalol and hydralazine to get blood pressure down and magnesium for seizure prophylaxis. And we're trying to get the BP around 140 over 90. And for malignant hypertension, we're going to again come back to those agents of nicardipine over labetalol and get the map down by 25%. And that concludes our tour of the disease processes that fall under the umbrella of hypertensive emergencies. It is obviously a little bit of a grab bag, and it depends on what target organ is involved, but recognizing these end organ dysfunctions in the setting of severe hypertension and knowing how to treat and to what target blood pressure is is incredibly important for the emergency provider. So thank you for listening. Please, as always, send questions, comments, concerns our way. We would love to involve our listeners in active conversation. And until next time, take care.